All right. Uh, we have a two for one special today on, of course, with me, Brad. Uh, we have uh, two philosophy courses on very different topics, but to me, that just means that one of them is bound to catch your eye. We have uh, first up, Unruly Women, Philosophy 3910, Section 2. Uh, which uh, meets on Mondays from 3 to 5.30 in the spring. It's taught by Professor Kristen Yezdal, uh, who uh, is uh, one of our fan favorites here in honor. She's taught for a long time. You probably know someone who's taken a course with her, and they'll confirm that she's great. This is a, a course where you have the opportunity to study the voices of generations of women uh, who have often been silenced or ignored. Um, and this is so vital, right? You don't need to look far in the news to be confronted with the public's neglect of women's voices or questioning of their legitimacy. It's a sad state, but this course can show you the power and the perseverance of these voices in political affairs over time and maybe give you some hope for the future. The other course, uh, taught by Professor Eugene Chislenko, uh, will be Responding to Evil. It's Philosophy 3910, Section 1, and it meets on Wednesdays from 3 to 5.30. Maybe we've always done this, uh, but it certainly seems more ever-present now. Uh, but, you know, the rush to label someone or something as evil is so interesting. Uh, what makes us want to attribute that evil to some circumstance or external factor, as opposed to wanting to label the person as evil? What role do different mediums of communication play in labeling something or someone as evil? And what is your opinion on the whole thing? If you've never taken a philosophy course in college, this is your opportunity to have your world rocked or at least maybe strongly reevaluated. I still hold that my favorite class in college was my ethics course. It was, uh, it was the hardest B I've ever earned, but the most rewarding. Now, I'm sure you'll do better. Um, but with that in mind, here's my conversation with Professors Yezdal and Chislenko. Well, thank you guys both for coming in today, uh, professors, uh, uh, Dr. Kristen Yezdal and Dr. Eugene Chislenko, both of the philosophy department here at Temple University. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks for having us. My Thanks pleasure. For us. Uh, we appreciate it. So uh, you're both teaching uh, special topics, philosophy courses in honors in the spring. Uh, uh, Dr. Yezdal, yours is on, uh, it's called Unruly Women. And Dr. Chislenko, uh, yours is called, uh, it's, it's evil, what is it? Responding to evil. Responding to evil. Yeah. Responding to evil, thank you. Um, so I want to get started just by hearing a little bit more about not only you, you know, your, your path, your, your research, both from undergrad to grad to temple, and then really specifically focusing on your background with your course uh, topic. You know, um, what is it that inspired you to develop this and, and so on? So, Dr. Yezdal, we'll start with you. Um, thanks. Well, I started out as a philosophy student in Oslo, Norway, and I was really, really interested in studying 19th century philosophy. Hmm. Quite a few people get an interest in philosophy through studying Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Marx, sometimes even Freud, and I was one of them. I read books all the time, and I translated into philosophy in a pretty seamless way. But at some point, I started wondering where all the women were. And I wanted to write my MA thesis on a woman philosopher. And I started working towards that. I found some scattered voices here and there. But then my advisor told me that, nope, you cannot go there. 
Hmm. We don't do women philosophers. They don't exist. Um, so I didn't. I started working on canon formation, how traditions are formed, what makes us care about the works we care about. And then a few years ago, I got back to my old passion. And I was thinking, is it really right that there were no women philosophers? And of course, that's not right at all. Mm. There are so many of them, and they are very, very clever. Were they, uh, were they just hard to find, or is it just that they were so underrepresented that, that even scholars didn't know about them? Or was it just that, well, I guess, what was it? Was it uh, why did your, your mentor think that there it wasn't worth studying at the time? Well, you know what? It wasn't just my mentor. Mm. It was, I think, pretty much everyone at the time, at least everyone in the environment where I was working. Um, it would have been nicer if it was just a single person. <laughs> it was not. This was the mentality. Also, I wish I could say that the works by these women were impossible to find, or at least really, really hard to find. <laughs> but they're not. Mm. They're there in the open. And especially now with internet, they're mm -hmm. there in the open. Because one of the things that I realized was that these women were not obscure in their own time, in their own days. Mm. So women philosophers writing in Germany, for example, which is one, my um, area of expertise, um, their works were translated mm. into English as they were writing. There were publishers sitting in Boston waiting to get their hands on their works. So they were translated into English. They're scanned now. They're available online. And that's one of the reasons why it's, it's really exciting and fairly easy to teach a mm. class on, on women philosophers. Great. So what are some ones that you really, uh, really connected to or, or ones that spoke to you right away that got you more and more interested in digging deeper? One of the women philosophers that I am really interested in is um, Madame de Stahl, or de Stahl as we call her today. Um, she was a French noble woman who was forced in exile by Napoleon. Mm. He did not want her anywhere near Paris. She was super powerful. She had super powerful friends. She was extremely well educated. Uh, and she was critical of what was going on in Napoleon's France and in Switzerland, where she lived, and in Germany, where she traveled. And she worked to some extent in the same area as I do, in the sense that she was interested in creating a tradition where people like her could fit in. Hmm. Her work was translated into English. I just have to mention this, even though I'll be talking for a bit. Um, her work was translated into English right away, and it inspired some of the feminist philosophers in Boston. Hmm. Lydia Maria Child is one of them. She's also known as an abolitionist. She's the only white woman, I think, um, at the Museum for African American History and Culture in DC. Mm. So that's a, a badge of honor to inspire somebody like Lydia Maria Child, this enormous power, powerhouse of a feminist and an abolitionist here in the US. I think that example really leads into my next question, which is also related to your course description. Um, the example you give um, really takes a very direct line between thought philosophy into political action. Um, 
And you write in your course description that women philosophers have sought to translate their thoughts into concrete political action over time. Is that something that is a defining characteristic of, of women philosophers that you've studied? Uh, it's a characteristic, I think we can say, not of the women philosophers qua women, but of the position of being outside of academia. So these women were not trained in universities, at least most of them. They were trained by private tutors. They were trained by brothers and uncles and, and fathers. So they never had positions. They never had academic positions. They were never um, you know, positioned in the ivory tower of mm. academia. So they were out in the street. They were writing for the people. They were writing in the world and about the world. Mm. And they cared about issues they saw everywhere around them. They cared about poverty. They cared about hunger. They cared about education, the prison system, social justice, class, issues that they were really surrounded by, but because they could not withdraw into the quarters of, of academic life, these issues were, were felt as, as really pressing at the mm -hmm. time. So their, their environment, their, their reality created their, their kind of vitality of their thought and, uh, and their purpose. I think this is the case, yes, definitely. Interesting. Dr. Chislenko, I want to turn to you. I want to talk about evil. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your background and also about the development of this this course. Well, now I just want to hear more about women philosophers, but okay. That's right. um, well, you got to take the course. That's right. That's right. Well, I took philosophy in high school, in my public school in New York, and I loved it. I was thinking about the meaning of life, and it felt so big and so juicy, and I just wanted to do it all the time. And then I started college, and I got this message that the meaning of life is not what we think about here. What you need to think about is things like, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for being the same person over time? Um, what happens in perception that's metaphysically important, things like that. And I somehow just hated it. I thought mm. it made the whole world seem gray and bleak. And I was like, I'm switching to English. I'm out of here. Um, and then I tried an ethics class. and it totally turned me around. I was like, oh, this actually is about the meaning of life and it is about who I want to be friends with and how to set up my life and what's important and how to treat people and how to think about myself and all of those things. Um, and so I just loved ethics. I loved everything about it. And that's, that's how I got into the bigger issue. And evil, I think, is one of these really key concepts that is so charged, is so present in the way that we think about um, politics and our roommates and our cousins and um, who we care about in the movies that we watch and all of these things. And I think it's, it's a way of thinking about people that's really important to us and also that we're really confused about and really ambivalent about because a lot of us think that we shouldn't think of people as evil at all, that it just reduces them to less than human, doesn't really try to understand them, just excludes them completely. And then on the other hand, when you try to think seriously about atrocities, whether it's the Holocaust or something more recent, um, it's really hard to wrap your mind around how something like that could happen uh, and what it could be, anything other than real evil in the world. And that makes people think, we have to think about this. We have to think about how it happens and why it happens. And so that's what I want to do with this class, is sort out all of these ways that we feel like we need to and feel like we can't um, think of people as evil. 
Is there, you mentioned the Holocaust, is there, is there one example of, of an event or something that happened that really did grab you, that, that made you more or less want to study this in more detail, more depth? Well, back in the last decade, there was more talk of countries being evil. So there was this axis of evil that we don't talk about as much anymore. And I remember seeing um, coverage of uh, President Bush and Saddam Hussein, and there was so much uh, seeing, there's so much iconography around both of them, actually, that would see them as evil. And I think a lot of that's happening now, again, even though that access phrase isn't around that much anymore. Uh, there's so much of like, Democrats are evil, Republicans are evil, Trump is evil, Muslims are evil. I think it's, it's flying around. Um, that's a lot of what gets me into it. The other thing I think is, uh, I was looking at uh, clips from children's movies. And thinking about just how philosophically loaded popular culture is, you know, so th this is this is going to date me some because I don't watch the current ones. But if you watch Aladdin, um, you see Jafar and he's totally evil. He doesn't have normal human motives. He's got some self-centeredness, but he's he's actually a pretty Satan like character. Um, and if you look at, you know, the rest of how they portray him, he looks very Arab and sounds very gay. And he's an evil character that you're not supposed to understand and not supposed to identify with. And so there are all of these ways that um, stereotypes and hatred feeds into um, seeing people as evil in those ways. And then that in return feeds into, I think, those stereotypes. And I think those kind of movies train us to see people that we don't like in that kind of way. And then you look at your own roommate that way. And that's that's the other thing I think that I think when I, when I started noticing how much things are soaked with that way of thinking about people. I was like, okay, we need to think about this more. So that's interesting to me because I would agree that, yes, there is a, a hesitance to say someone's evil. Like you want to understand yeah. their motives. You want to understand, you know, what is it about their upbringing that made them that way? But you just rattled off a lot of examples of, of pop culture and, and in the news, people just kind of blatantly saying this person, that person's evil, this religion's evil, etc. Yeah, it's the dark side of the force. You don't need to, you don't think about why the emperor in Star mm. Wars got to be the way that he is. It's, he's <laughs> just evil. He's just bad. He's just evil. Yeah. yeah. It, so so is it a matter of um, is, is evil sometimes used as just a, a propaganda piece um, without kind of understanding the deeper implications of it? Um, but when you really do boil it down to me face to face with you, it's harder for me to call you evil. But if I put up some sort of like filter or some sort of screen between you and me, it's easier for me to say that. I think that's right. I think there's an essential distancing and lack of interest in uh, seeing what the world is like from inside a person that goes with seeing them that way. Yeah. Interesting. So on that note, thinking about, uh, you know, the kind of role of technology and other kind of really technological interfaces that people use to do a lot of communication. I want to turn back to you, Dr. Yesdal, thinking about what role modern day communication technology might play in kind of addressing this underrepresentation of women philosophers or just in, in general, where do you see that kind of playing into the story of uh, women in philosophy? Well, I guess I'm old fashioned in the sense that I believe in books and the power of books. And one of the things I'm working on at the moment is to put together a reader with mm. Oxford University Press that's bringing works by these women to classroom all over. I guess there will be an electronic edition <laughs> of the book too. Um, but I you know one really powerful source of motivation here is how women feel about being silenced 
these mm. days. Mm. And if that's what we have in mind, the internet, modern forms of communication play a really, really important role. Finding out that you're not the only one who's being silenced, for example, is for many women a very powerful experience. And in that context, I guess it can offer a sense of perspective to go back to the early 19th century and see how angry, but also how eloquent these women philosophers were when they were talking about experiences that are not unlike the experiences some of us are having today. So uh, to both of you, um, let's turn our attention to what the classroom experience will be like for the students. You know, someone that is interested but maybe has never taken a philosophy course before. I hear that a lot as an advisor. They're, they're nervous about that. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so what is a typical day or a typical assignment look like um, for, this, for, for your courses? And I'll open that up to both of you. Do you want to be? Okay. Um, you know, the way I think about it is I, I love museums. I love going to a museum and getting to see uh, paintings and sculptures and multimedia installations from so many different places and getting this kind of overview of what they're all like. Um, and there are classes that are like that where you get to have that experience of trying out a bunch of different traditions and, point of view, and points of view. And I think there's an element of that, so I try to give some range. But mostly my classes are the opposite of that. So all of the assignments, even though you're reading different kinds of things, all of the assignments are about deciding what your view is mm. and trying to articulate why you have your view on something and trying to say it in a way that could reach someone that doesn't have that view already. Um, so that's, uh, it's a little uh, scary, I think, but also I think it's exciting. It's, it's I think in, in, in the typical class day, what I give is pressure to figure out your view on something. And I mean, it's pressure, but it's also opportunity. So usually I talk some and then I try to make sure that everyone talks to each other uh, and to me. And we do a lot of thinking about uh, what could be said uh, mm. about what's a value in, for example, thinking of evil in this way or not thinking of evil at all and so on. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's what I try to do. And there's different ways of trying to do that. But mm -hmm. when you write a paper for me, you you don't just summarize someone's mm -hmm. view. I'm trying to get people to think about, uh, think as much as they can about um, what view they want to have about mm -hmm. something. So I guess my class is going to be a bit of a marathon because <laughs> I'm teaching a class that meets once a week. Mm. Um, but every class will involve a lot of different things. So I have been teaching in the honors program now for 13 years. I've been teaching existentialism mostly, and that's a class I absolutely love. So I'm thinking about this course along the same lines. Existentialism is more of an interdisciplinary course. It deals with existentialism in film, in music, in art, and in philosophy. Although the papers the students write are straightforward philosophy paper, but we develop that step by step. Mm. And I think I'll do the same for, for this class. We will, for every week, there will be some reading. There will be something to possibly listen to, to look at. Students are bringing their own experiences to class, talking about things they care about. And then we gradually, from something that's fairly concrete, 
work our way into the more abstract problems of, of philosophy. Well, you know, I think one, one topic that both of these classes have in common is, is what it means to really take someone's voice seriously. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the things I love about philosophy in general, and that I think we, we might have somewhat different approaches, but we're both really interested in getting people to take seriously voices that haven't always been taken seriously, mm. and also take your own voice seriously and take the voice of other people in the class seriously. I don't know if I'm, if I'm saying things that you wouldn't agree with, but... No, I think that's um, that's very, very true. And also to develop listening skills yeah. and to think about what's essential in what the other person is mm. saying. Be that other person somebody who's potentially evil or being classified <laughs> as evil or somebody who's just being silenced. Mm -hmm. So ways to articulate, find your own voice, articulate your points of view, and ways to listen to others mm -hmm. and give others room to articulate their points of views in ways that are meaningful, I think will be key factors in both these classes. I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad you found that through line for these two courses there, this idea of studying others that can easily be villainized or easily be silenced. Um, and both of these classes are going to kind of shed a light on that and help you not only understand them better, but also yourself and how you interact with that better. That's the hope. That's the hope. Well, thank you both for coming in today. Um, these are the two honors special topics out of the philosophy department in the spring. Um, yes, thank you again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. This was great. Thank you. All right, there you go. Um, hopefully one or maybe both of those courses just really sounded interesting. So why don't you take them both, right? All right. We've got at least one more of these of courses to go, maybe more. Hope to have you back.